Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. Please pray with me. Dear God in heaven, we ask you this morning as we do each week, wherever we have gathered, to be with us. And we know that you have kept your promise and are here. May my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please sit. And so once again, we have come to Advent. You can see we are laid out in purple. We have our beautiful Advent wreath with one candle lit. This season that begins the church year helps us to prepare for Christmas, the coming, the Advent of Jesus Christ. Now, Advent is always full of readings about expectation. You heard them this morning, often from the biblical prophets, readings about waiting and hoping for what's to come. Sometimes, though, as we read these prophecies, I think it can be a little hard to see the correlation between biblical expectation and what expectation might mean for us, contemporary expectation, especially in light of the fact that we live not only after the incarnation, after Jesus coming, but after the resurrection too. In some sense, we're on the total opposite end of the spectrum, the temporal spectrum from the Old Testament prophets. They saw the whole story laid out in front of them, and we look back and see the whole story in the past. So what does waiting mean when we know how the story ends? We are resurrection people, and we yet are expecting something that has definitely and absolutely already come. So can we read something like Isaiah and see contemporary modern day relevance? Well, I think that we can. And I'd like today to look at the prophet's cry to God to come down and intercede for his people and I think as we look at this prophecy, we'll see some pretty clear parallels to our own contemporary lives, even as we celebrate the redeeming work of Christ that is absolutely already accomplished. So let's go back to the before time, before Advent, before incarnation, before resurrection, 600 years before Jesus' birth, when the Jews returned home from their Babylonian exile, they found everything in ruins. Jerusalem was a ruin. The temple had been destroyed. Everything was a wreck. And so there was only one place they could turn. They turned to God. They called out to him. Come down, they said. Come down and make things better. Now we have come the first Sunday in Advent, 2,020 years after Jesus' birth. But we look outside, and I think that things aren't necessarily too different, at least in vibe, if not in details, from how it was for those ancient Israelites. 
We don't have a temple, but it feels like if we did, it would be destroyed. I mean, everything is a wreck. Global pandemic, governmental uncertainty, cultural upheaval. And so like them, we call out to God. Come down, we say. Come down and make things better. Our lament is the same. And so our desire for God's intervention is the same. So I want us to consider this morning what Isaiah's prophetic words to the people of Israel then can mean as God's word to us, his people today. The text that we have assigned to us this morning are the first nine verses of Isaiah chapter 64. And I want to go through them sort of in order in three sections. And the general themes are the coming of God, our sin, and his promise. The coming of God first, our sin second, and his promise Third, But before we go through those, I want to give us a little context. And I want to go back just one chapter, a few verses to help us set the scene for what's going on here in chapter 64. Which if you read it, if you look, our chapter begins with Isaiah asking the Lord to come down. Right? He says, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. But why is it that Isaiah is imploring God to come? I think two reasons, and these are going to help us understand what Isaiah has to say to us this morning. One reason is internal to the people, and one is external, both of which parallel our experience today. And I want to talk about them one at a time. External first, and go back into chapter 63 to do so. So we're we're going to look at two verses in chapter 63 to help us understand what Isaiah has for us in chapter 64. So Isaiah 63, 15, just a few verses before our assigned reading begins, the prophet says this, again, speaking to God, look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. Now, when I read this, the first thing I noticed was Isaiah's description of God's dwelling place in heaven. He says it's holy and beautiful. And I couldn't help but remember what had happened to God's dwelling on earth, the temple. It had been burned to the ground, totally destroyed. So Isaiah is pointing out the difference. In a sense, he's asking God to notice the difference between where he lives in heaven and where he is supposed to dwell on earth. Hey, God, Isaiah is saying, you might want to look down from your ivory tower up there and note that your people are suffering. Your earthly dwelling place, the temple, is a smoking hole in the ground. Come down and help us. This kind of external tribulation is a major reason that we call out to God even now. God, we say, I know you live in heaven. 
Where, as it says in Revelation 7, there is no hunger or thirst or any scorching heat and where every tear has been wiped away from every eye. But that's not what it's like here. Don't forget about us down here. We're suffering. There is a virus plaguing the entire world. Many of our kids aren't allowed to be in school. We've got to wear masks all the time. Half the country voted for that guy. And I don't really know if I can handle it all. Come down here and help me. And you know, I find it actually so encouraging that Isaiah feels able to talk to God in this way. To almost shout at him. Hey, you, remember your people. I'm uh, reminded of that scene in The Apostle where Robert Duvall is in his attic shouting at God. I'm confused. I'm mad. I love you, Lord. I love you, but I'm mad at you. I love being able to talk at God like this. And Isaiah knows that he can yell at God in this way, not because he's trying to change God's mind about something. He's yelling for God to keep his promise. Which, of course, is something that God will do no matter what. And the proof of this is in the last verse of our assigned reading this morning, Isaiah 64, verse 9. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. We're going to keep coming back to this verse throughout the sermon this morning. This is the truth on which everything hangs. We are God's people, and he made us a promise. And God always keeps his promises. So, external tribulation exists. The temple is destroyed, and our world seems to be falling apart outside our window. God, we say, remember us. Look down on us. Keep your promise. Come take care of us. We are your people. This is how Isaiah says it. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. But there is an internal reality at play here, too. And of course, we should have seen this coming because as much as we'd like it to be true that all of our problems are caused by things out there, caused by viruses or virus responses or elections by things outside our windows, outside ourselves. It's just not the case. We are the people who listened to the serpent, aren't we? We are the people who ate the fruit. And the root of our problems is a little closer to home. So now Isaiah 63, 15, the verse immediately following Isaiah's drawing of God's attention to the difference between his beautiful heavenly dwelling and Israel's destroyed earthly dwelling. Isaiah says this, acknowledging that Israel has problems of an internal sort too. For you are our father, he says, though Abraham does not know us. And Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are our Father. Our Redeemer from old is your name. 
Now, Isaiah invokes Abraham and Israel here. And by Israel, he means Jacob. He's talking about the famous patriarchs of the nation. And he says this interesting thing, that they don't know or acknowledge the people. What does he mean by that? Well, by saying Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us, he's saying we've fallen so far. We've gotten ourselves so far off track that our own forefathers wouldn't recognize us anymore. And this is actually a pretty common prophetic refrain. Again, like you've seen in a hundred movies. What's become of you? I don't even know who you are anymore. The prophets often said versions of this. You're looking so much like the pagan nations around you that God won't recognize you. And Isaiah here is saying, if Abraham and Jacob got out of a time machine right now and saw what you guys were getting up to, they'd say, what are you doing? And imagine if our own New Testament forefathers, people like Peter and James and John, or God forbid, Paul, walked onto the American evangelical scene today. They'd say, what on earth is this? What are you people doing? Paul opposed Peter to his face in Jerusalem and accused him of not preaching the gospel based on who he was having lunch with. And Paul was right to do it. I suspect they would have strong words for us 21st century evangelicals. Like Israel then, the church now, even our church, try as we might to be faithful, is too often failing to uphold the standard that God has set for us. Our problems, Isaiah is saying, are not just out there. They are in here, too. And not only in this room, in this church, but in each one of our hearts. We need God to come. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence. Now, that's the first section of Isaiah 64, the prophet's plea for God to come down. But Isaiah knows that God's coming down is a two-edged sword, right? Yes, on the one hand, he'll get rid of all the bad stuff and set everything right. And that sounds great. But on the other hand, we're part of the bad stuff. Isaiah says, Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when the fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. Ah, yes, make your name known to your adversaries. Let the nations, the pagans, tremble at your presence. But then again, the standard prophetic warning. We, God's own Children are just like them. Just like those nations. Just like those pagans. We have ourselves become God's adversaries. But you were angry and we sinned. 
says Isaiah as he moves into the second section of our reading, the section about our sin. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf. And our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. And again, this is not just a problem in Isaiah's day. St. Paul picks up on this line of thought in the New Testament in Romans 3. What then, he asks, are we Jews any better off than those pagan nations? No, he says, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, that's everyone, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if God comes down to do away with all the evil, it puts everyone in the line of fire, even his children. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners, each one of us to the core. So is asking God to come down a bad idea? Isaiah admits that if he comes, we won't have any control over him. Yet, O Lord, you are our father, he says. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. That's verse 8 of our reading. It's the transition point between the second section, we are all sinners, and what's coming in the third and final section. Here Isaiah is saying, you are in control, God. You are the potter. We are the clay. But despite our sin, we have one card left to play. There is one thing we can do. One thing that makes begging God to come down and get involved a good thing, a necessary thing, and not a frightening thing. And this is where we come back to Isaiah's final sentence, the final thing Isaiah has to say on our behalf this morning, which is about God's promise. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, And do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. Now consider, he says, we are all your people. This is what we can do. We can remind God of his promise. Not that he's forgotten, but this is our call to him. God, don't forget, you made a promise to us. It's a promise recorded in Jeremiah 33. Here's what you said, God, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. For I will forgive their iniquity. 
and I will remember their sin no more. We'd like you to pay special attention to that last part, O oh Lord. You will be our God, we will be your people, and you promise to forgive our iniquity and remember our sin no more. And Isaiah says it in almost exactly the same way in verse 9. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord. Do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider we are all your people. So we remind God of his promise. And what does this reminding look like? Well, it looks like calling out to him. It looks like repentance, like confession. It looks like the reaffirmation of our faith and the recitation of the creed. It looks like reliance on those very promises of which we are reminding God. And there is good news for the people who remind God of his promises. God always keeps his promise every single time. Remember, for the people of Isaiah's time, the good news was still in the form of a promise made. And it's that promise that we celebrate as we celebrate Advent, waiting for God to come and fix things. But for us, who live on the other side of Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, our good news is in the form not just of a promise made, but of a promise already kept. God has kept his promise and has saved his people. On account of Jesus, our iniquity is not remembered. My friend Zach Hicks added a bridge to Samuel Gandhi's classic hymn, His Be the Victor's Name. And the bridge goes like this. Our sin is cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. That's what Christ has accomplished for you. Your tribulations, both the external ones that come upon you and the internal ones that you bring upon yourself, were taken to the cross with Christ. They're gone, forgotten, cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. And then the best line of the hymn, what though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. Satan's last trick is to whisper our sins into our ears, desperate to convince us that there are just too many of them for God to forgive. But we have good news. We have a promise kept. We have Jesus Christ, and his cross is sufficient. The empty tomb is successful. Our sins are cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. And so we can, like the prophet, remind God that we are all his people. That's what we'll do in a moment when we say the creed. God, I am your child. And we can do that because of one simple fact. 
We are his people, his children, because we have been interceded for, because we have had a sacrifice made on our behalf, because we are covered by the righteousness of God's beloved, sinless son, Jesus Christ. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but on account of Jesus, your sin has been cast into the sea of God's forgotten memory. And now, God's coming down, coming down here, what we're symbolically waiting for in Advent, is truly an occasion for joy and celebration because of the coming and the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. You, even you, are regarded as one of God's people. In fact, his own adopted child, forgiven, redeemed, Beloved, amen.